Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Hey, just before we get started, this is the Conspiracy, Paranormal, and True Crime Podcast. The nature of this podcast is gory, unsettling, and definitely vulgar. And we curse a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. So be advised that we're just two idiots with a mic. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast, the yo-yoers. The yo-yos. The yo-yos. Okay, sorry guys. Sorry to interrupt you like I'm that. I'm Morgan. I'm Taylor. And this is Creeps and Crimes. And this is episode 95. Guys, okay, sorry. Before we even started recording, this is episode 95. Yeah, you guys know that. It's in the title. Whack. Crazy. We're 95 years old. Before <laughs> we even started recording, we were like, we need to come up with a name for the crew, for, for you. you guys. And we thought we were like the killers, the, the crimers, killers, the gremlins, the, the, the monsters, the cruisers, the Venetians, like the, the grays, the grays. And we're like, you know what? Maybe none of that. And until you just said yo, 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 and maybe and the yo, yoers. And then one of the things was idiots. Yeah. And then we were like, maybe not. No, that's not one cool. And Nikki would love that, though. Yeah, because Nikki calls everybody. Idiot. What's up, you idiot? <laughs> um, no, but we were trying to think of a good name for you because Patreon, we have the OG Pick Me Call, and I'm loving it. I think everyone could be Pick Me Call. They're just OG Pick Me. So do you guys want to be Pick Me Call or is there another name that you can think of? Like we have the killer moms, but we don't. You're, we're not all killer moms. And we don't want to be the killers because that's a band. But right. Do you want to be the travel chives? <laughs> travel chives? I don't get that. They're not on Patreon. That's right. You guys got to get on it. Patreon. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Hate that for you, man. <laughs> hate that for you. Um, God. Okay. I can't even really think of anything. No. Like, we, we don't know. We're stuck. We're and like we're Coco hoping Chanel. You, like, what? Yeah. Like, we want to do something C and C. Like, we will change the first letter to a word to C. Like, the clairvoyant killers with the C or like we don't know like that's stupid we don't like that right so like maybe like maybe there's something you've heard that we've said that you thought was like so funny that like is embedded in your mind and would fit so like maybe we'll run a poll or you guys DM us what you think and then we'll run a poll from the DMs on yeah. our favorite ones mm-hmm. and we'll let you guys decide yeah because because it's your name it's your name it's what we're gonna be calling you but we have to come up with a name for you because it's imperative to season three merch. Yeah. And Creeps and Crimers is just not it's just not it. Yeah. No, we're done with Creeps and Crimers. Like, th- first off, we never even liked that one in the beginning. It was, it was just, just the only thing we had. <laughs> we were just like, oh, the Creeps and Crimers. We love that. Love that. But we also <laughs> loved our first logo, if that tells you anything about <laughs> us back then. So we got to change it. Yeah, we've got to get it's a new gone. one. You guys are no longer the Creeps and Crimers. You're now the Coco Chanel's. <laughs> Coco Chanel. Just kidding. But not really. The Coco Crimers. The Coco's cruisers and boozers but no that's too close and that's why we drink boozers and shakers yeah damn it 
gotta come up with something Original. you guys you guys that are creative out there that's not me clearly um get your brain fired up and apparently on my it. creativity is gone today yeah we're done yeah we are so anyway guys lately a lot's been like happening we've mm-hmm. been networking with a lot of different people we've been having a lot of important meetings and last night was one of them. We had this incredible meeting with oh my God. somebody huge. Huge. And um, during this meeting, we got invited out to Los Angeles to go to the Great Minds of True Crime panel. Panel event with Moment House. With Moment House. And <laughs> we were first like. First off, we shit our pants. We Well, first <laughs> off, we were like, okay, are you joking? Are you being for real? Like, don't like, don't joke around with us because we will buy the plane ticket right now. Like, don't joke. And, and they like, were like, come on let's go let's go and so we're like lining this up to go to LA like we literally had the flights in our basket we're about to click okay and we had to wait for a little bit more confirmation from the people that we work with and um, and I also have a job yeah we have I have a husband not yeah really, but we have husbands we have, we have lives that we we needed to just okay a bunch of different areas yeah life got in the way Taylor has to be in Detroit to go get her damn passport and flights within a matter of hours guys flights like doubled in price and it was just it was literally a million dollars it started off at 718 a million dollars when we got back on there it, to it went buy from them. 718 dollars to 1.5 million dollars 1.5 million dollars and we're not even joking <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are but it was like 2500 dollars a flight it was per person it was insane So anyway, we didn't get to go and we really are just really down and out about it. Your girl did a gruesome murder today because that's how angry I am. We're crushed. I'm crushed. Absolutely destroyed. But we are tuning into it tonight. It is tonight because we, instead of being in Los Angeles at the event, we're sitting on the couch in Tennessee recording for you Taylor stayed up till 2 a.m. last night to get that episode that you heard last week, episode 93, 94. Um, Yeah, that is today that we released that. Your girl, Taylor, was up until 2 a.m. editing it because up until that point, we were debating whether or not we buy a plane ticket for three hours from then. (laughs) So Still debating. Still debating. We're still like, can we teleport there? Do you think we could get there in time? (laughs) (laughs) If we got in the car right now, would we even make it to Arkansas? That was literally a conversation (laughs) we had was, okay, well, what if we drove? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we're crushed, but you know what? It's going to come back. The universe circles back. We sent it off knowing that it was going to come back, and it was going to come back. 10 times bigger and better and it was a great opportunity and the fact that we even were presented with the opportunity like that is just incredible the girls on episode one if you guys ever if you go back and listen to episode one those girls don't do it by the way but those girls (laughs) on that episode they literally would never believe what we are doing right now right now i'll cry they literally had first off i was looked at as crazy i was a crazy girl i'll cry right now i'll sob my eyes out about creeps and crimes and there, there's no one that's going to stop episode me episode one those Deja girls Vu and jennifer Pitt. <laughs> stop it those two girls never would believe what we are experiencing and doing today no they and never they would never would. believe that all of you guys are listening right now they're so sweet i love those bitches i know they had no idea what they were in for nope not a single clue anyway nope. because of our destroyed crush two drunk bitches hearts um we are not giving you a long intro, so that is it for us today. <laughs> and we said we're not giving you a long intro. And actually, that is it for minutes. the episode. See you next week. See you Bye. Next week. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Just kidding. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. creepy.
okay, Miss Morgan, what do you have for us today with your new ring? I know we're going to never stop talking about it. I know. I'm still engaged, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, today I actually have kind of a mystery for you. Um, so it's not like a ghost oh. or an alien or a conspiracy. You mystic bitches. That is your new name. I know. <laughs> um, so today I'm going to be telling you the story of 31-year-old Gloria Ramirez. Um, Gloria was born on January 11th, 1963 in Riverside, California. She stayed in the area for most of her life, and then she married a man named Angel Ramirez and had two children, a daughter named Evelyn and a son named Angel Jr. Gloria and her husband had a pretty rough and rocky marriage and eventually ended up divorcing. But Gloria remained in Riverside with her two kids and a new boyfriend, Johnny Estrada. Mm. And just when life begins to look up, it crumbled hard again when just weeks short of turning 31 years old, Gloria was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Oh no. It was rapidly worsening, spreading to other parts of her body, and Gloria's doctor gave her just a couple more years of life expectancy. All throughout life, Gloria was believed to be a pretty private person. And for many weeks after her diagnosis, she struggled, alone, by herself. And to make matters worse, Gloria did not have health insurance at the time. This led to Gloria searching for answers on her own. And unfortunately, Gloria and her caregivers would later learn that these methods were not the safe route to take. On February 19, 1994, Johnny, Gloria's boyfriend, called 911 and reported that she was sick all day. And whatever was going on with her, she was progressively getting worse by the minute. And that they needed an ambulance to come take Gloria to the hospital immediately. Johnny reported that Gloria was suffering from severe chest pains along with vomiting, nausea, and respiratory issues. Emergency dispatch was sent out and Gloria was immediately rushed to the Riverside General Hospital. While in the ambulance, Gloria was hooked up to the ventilator and given an intravenous infusion. Paramedics noticed that she seemed to be showing signs of delusion, confusion, as well as an elevated heart rate and abnormal breathing. Hmm. But her health was rapidly declining by the time she arrived at the hospital her condition was much much worse gloria was barely conscious and she had a very fast heart rate she had really shallow breathing and very sluggish speech they immediately got her back into a room and they began to try to sedate her using midazolam lorazepam and diazepam as well as giving heart medications such as Valium and Ativan. Sorry if I butchered those. <sighs> Probably did. No, God. You can't say the wrong medication. Like, you can't mispronounce a medication I found out within the true crime world because y'all are all nurses and you're assholes about the fucking <laughs> the pronunciations. That one TikTok I did, y'all ripped, ripped my ass apart. And then half of y'all were like, I mean, she's not a nurse. Like, why would she know how to pronounce this? And I'm like, yeah, right? What they said. Right. The other half of you put me in the grave. <laughs> yeah, so. I remember that. Oh, my God. They were ripping you. <laughs> they were ripping my ass apart. Um, <laughs> Gloria's body reacted poorly to these medications, and she began to go into shock. There was no response, so they pulled out the defibrillator to get Gloria back. Now, guys, we have a question. Is it defibrillator, defibrillator, or defib? defibrillator defibrillator i say defibrillator 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 
You know, we don't know. And neither does Google. I want you guys to Google <laughs> defibrillator pronunciation right now. It, just do it. Just and trust us. she does not say it right. No, she doesn't. But this is when medical staff began to pick up on these like certain types of anomalies that they have never, ever seen in the medical field before. Okay. The first one was Gloria's skin began to look like it was covered in this like oily sheen layer that was definitely not sweat. What? And then this odor began protruding from her mouth. What? That smelled like this like fruity, garlicky scent. Oh, no. And then a nurse named Susan Kane, she was an RN, began to draw blood from Gloria's arm. And immediately when the needle entered the arm, the smell of ammonia began emanating from the syringe. What? Susan then passed the syringe to Dr. Maureen Welsh, who was like, "Mm -hmm, yep, that is what ammonia smells like, just to get some confirmation. And then Maureen then passed the syringe to the resident doctor, Julie Gorchinsky, who was like, wait a second, what the fuck is that? Floating around in the vial of blood were these crystal-like particles. What? Almost immediately, Susan Kane hit the ground. She passed out and was quickly taken out of the ER room. Then Julie, the resident doctor, said that she was going to throw up and then she hit the ground. And then Dr. Welsh hit the ground. Oh, my God. All three medical professionals who came into contact with Gloria's blood fainted. Oh, my God. When it was realized that whatever was going on with Gloria seemed to be affecting the staff airborne, all patients in the emergency department were evacuated to the parking lot and almost all ER staff went with them. A select few doctors and nurses chose to stay behind with the hope of ke- keeping Gloria alive. Regardless, uh, I love healthcare workers. Yeah, that is some that is some dedicated bullshit right that there. That is like amazing. Like, could you imagine that? No, no. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I know what I would do because I always have to act like I'm a hero. But I know, <laughs> I what, know I what you do. would do. But I know what I would do. And it's, <laughs> Mark it's, would be in the car. It's a three-letter word: R U N. Run. Morgan's waving at me from the other end of the parking lot as she's ripping out. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so these doctors and nurses chose to stay with Gloria. However, she began going into cardiac distress. In addition to the first three, three more staff members were unable to treat Gloria because of strange symptoms that they began to develop while in the room. Oh, no. These range from more fainting, Shortness of breath, nausea, and temporary paralysis. Why didn't they put on hazmat suits? It was just too quick. This all happened in a span of 30 minutes. I've seen Owen from Grey's Anatomy toss on a hazmat suit in five seconds. This is 1990s. That is when Grey's Anatomy started originally. Christina, George There's actually an episode about Gloria and Grace. Oh, is is that why I literally, I feel like I know this? Yeah. Of course it is. After more than 45 minutes of CPR and defibrillation, oh, Gloria Ramirez was pronounced dead at 8.50 p.m., less than one hour after her boyfriend called 911. Her stated cause of death at the time was kidney failure in relation to her cancer. But there was too many unexplained events that happened in that short amount of time for people to accept that cause of death yeah. and to not have any questions. Right. But even after Gloria's death, the night just got weirder. 
23 more people in the ER became ill and five remained hospitalized in the days afterwards, all showing the same symptoms. The hospital waited for a special team to arrive in hazmat suits. Cough, you know they brought in the CDC. Yeah, they did. This team put Gloria's body in a separate room temporarily and then later sealed it in a double plastic bag and placed it in an airtight sealed aluminum casket. Whoa. The hazmat team then searched the emergency rooms for any signs of poison gas or toxins or foreign substances, but they couldn't find anything that had that could explain what had just happened mm-hmm. an investigation was started almost immediately and was overseen by dr anna maria Asoria and dr kirsten waller both who worked for california's department of health and human services the two interviewed more than 30 staff members that were working that night and found that many shared the same symptoms fainting shortness of breath nausea muscle spasms and temporary paralysis But these 30-some staff members all shared some things in common. They were all in close proximity to Gloria. Mm. They were mostly women, and they were all examined by professionals after the fact, and their blood work all came back normal. I'll get back to that. Okay. Officials performed three autopsies on Gloria's body. The first one, six days after her death. The second one, six weeks after her death. And the third one, right before her burial. The autopsy performed on March 25th, which was the second autopsy, showed that there were signs of Tylenol, lidocaine, codeine, and Tygan in her system. Whoa. Tygan is an anti-nausea medication that breaks down into amines in the body. Amines are related to ammonia, which would explain the smell in her blood sample. Okay. But more importantly, the toxicology report showed that she had large amounts of dimethyl sulfone in her blood and tissues. Okay. Dimethyl sulfone, sulfon, not sulfone. We'll see. Does occur <laughs> naturally in the human body as it works to break down certain substances. But once it enters the body, it disappears relatively quickly with a half-life of just three days. Okay. Except there was so much in Gloria's system that it was registering three times the normal amount six weeks after her death. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Isn't this six weeks after she died? Yes. But does your body just stop like pushing things out at that point or does it naturally go? I don't know. Regardless, it was three times the normal amount. Okay. Three weeks later, on April 12th, 1994, county officials announced that Gloria died of heart failure due to kidney failure brought on by late-stage cervical cancer. They said the unusual substances in her blood were too low to explain her death, even though they were elevated. The county then held the body for two more months before releasing it to the family for a proper funeral, with fear that the toxicity levels would make people faint or pass out. I mean, yeah. During all of this, the media had dubbed Gloria Ramirez as the toxic lady, which absolutely destroyed the family. I mean, yeah, that's horrific. And the final answer of the investigation that was held by the Department of Health and Human Services was that all of the affected hospital staff had just suffered from mass hysteria. But those who lived through that night know that that was absolutely not the case. Right. Especially resident doctor Julie Gorchinsky. She knew mass hysteria was absolute total fucking bullshit. Yeah, Department of whatever you are. (laughs) Whatever. Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, you're full of bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Prior to the night that Gloria was admitted to the emergency room, Julie had a near-perfect health record. 
However, following the night that Gloria was admitted, Julie developed a number of medical issues. After holding that vial of Gloria's blood and fainting to the floor, Julie spent the next two weeks in the intensive care unit with severe breathing issues. Oh, no. Then eventually developed hepatitis and avascular necrosis in her knees. Oh, my God. All within the short few months after the exposure. Julie was the voice for those affected that night and the head of those searching for answers in what the fuck happened. Yeah. She pushed and pushed and it worked. A scientific analysis of the event was ordered by the Riverside Coroner's Office, who then contacted the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. The Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory is a federal research facility located in Livermore, California, and funded by the University of California, Berkeley in 1952. It is primarily funded. I'm sorry, it was founded by the University of California. It is primarily funded by the United States Department of Energy, and it is mostly a nuclear research facility. But they agreed to do an analysis of the event. That's weird. The, isn't that weird? Yeah. The investigation was open and ran by Patrick M. Grant of Livermore Forensic Science Center. Here they found most of the same findings about Gloria that the coroner did, with the addition that she had an abnormal amount of nicotinamide in her system. And this is when they theorized that Gloria covered her body head to toe in something called DMSO. So I'm going to bring it back in that nicotinamide or whatever it's called. I thought you were trying to say nicotine in like a cool way at first. It looks like nicotine, but it's nicotinamide. Nicotinamide. Whatever it is. So anyway, they then theorized, this is their findings, that Gloria covered her body head to toe in something called DMSO, and that rhymed. About 30 years before this, DMSO, or dimethyl sulfone, was all the rave. Research in the early 1960s led doctors to believe that DMSO could relieve pain and reduce anxiety, and that it was the cure-all. Athletes would rub DMSO cream on their skin to relieve aches and pains. Elders would rub it on their wrists to relieve arthritis. And parents would even rub it on their babies to get them to settle down. Oh, my God. When I Googled what dimethyl sulfone was used for, it says it has been claimed to relieve stress, pain, treat parasitic infections, increase energy, boost metabolism, enhance circulation, and improve wound healing. It was the shit for about five years. When a study in mice showed that DMSO could ruin your eyesight and lead to blindness. By 1965, medical science labeled DMSO as a toxic substance and they banned it. But that didn't stop people because they thought Big Pharma was hiding this pure gold secret of a cure-all medicine. I'm not going to lie. I literally was thinking that in my head right before you sound like, wow, it must be really good. It must cure cancer or some shit. Right. So it gained this underground following, and there were some loopholes. By the late 1970s, the only way to legally buy DMSO was to get it as a degreaser in a hardware store. Oh, my God. The DMSO in degreasers was 99% dimethyl sulfone. The head researcher, Patrick Grant, decided to look into what happens when DMSO is exposed to a large amount of oxygen. When exposed, dimethyl sulfone turns into dimethyl sulfate. And dimethyl sulfate as a gas is very dangerous. Oh my God. Dimethyl sulfate vapors can destroy cells in people's eyes, lungs, and mouth. Oh. And when this vapor gets into the body, it can cause delirium, convulsions, and paralysis. (gasps) 
The symptoms that were described by the medical staff that night that were exposed to Gloria Ramirez match the symptoms of people who have been exposed to dimethyl sulfate vapors. This is what makes sense, especially if Gloria was using DMSO as an alternative treatment of pain relief for her cancer. Oh, my Lord. Which then means the staff did not suffer from mass hysteria. They suffered from dimethyl sulfate poisoning. Yeah. But if Gloria was using DMSO mixed with the sedatives and the defibrillation, it would explain the crystallization in her blood and her body secreting oil, as well as the creation of the high levels of dimethyl sulfate in her blood. There was no record ever of Gloria owning DMSO. Her family denied the use of DMSO and there was no way for analysts or experts at Livermore Laboratory to know for sure that Gloria was consuming DMSO. Yeah. So this became the unofficial answer to the unanswered question of what had happened that night. But this answer, while it satisfied the scientific community, really pissed off the family yeah especially after gloria's body was held for so long for them to come out saying that the official cause of death was kidney failure and then for them to come out and be like well actually she was just consuming this illegal substance even though she wasn't even though they had no proof of that right maggie ramirez garcia who is gloria's sister spoke on april of 1994 about her thoughts on the official investigation she says quote It takes them 10 weeks to say she died of natural causes. I don't believe anything the county officials or the coroner says. I honestly believe my sister may have lived if she hadn't gone into that emergency room that night. I don't know what the county is afraid of, but we want answers. Oh, shit. The family then hired pathologist Dr. Richard Fukumoto to investigate Gloria's death. But... He was really unable to do anything because Gloria's internal organs were cross-contaminated with fecal matter and her heart was missing at the time of the independent autopsy and nobody could locate it. What, what do you fucking mean you lost a heart? It's like in the Kendrick Johnson case. What the fuck do you mean you lost all of his organs? Right. And replaced him with newspaper. What, what do you mean? Where are the organs are the at? Organs? You don't just lose a heart. Right. Okay. The family continued to publicly doubt the story being shared of their beloved Gloria. They knew something else had happened upon entering the emergency room at Riverside General Hospital that night. They believed it was wrongdoing by the hospital staff and county coroner who misplaced a lot of evidence. Besides the missing organ, investigators couldn't track down that syringe that was used to draw (sighs) Gloria's blood. They had that whole place on lockdown that night. And you don't think they would keep that syringe in a biohazard bag? Or right. It immediately goes in a sharps bucket. You know what I mean? They're like not going to dump That sharps bucket is right there. It made everybody pass out. Why would they? Why can't you find the syringe? Right. To this day, Gloria Ramirez's death remains unsolved. She was buried in Riverside's Olive Wood Memorial Park on April 20th, 1994. During the funeral, family and friends continued to blame the hospital for failing her. Even Reverend Brian Taylor spoke and kept referring to, quote, that bizarre, tragic incident in the hospital emergency room that took her life. Since then, many doubt the official cause of death and the analysis from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. 
So I'm going to go through two more theories. Well, yeah. Where the hell's Julia? I thought she was like this big advocate. She's she's standing with the with the hospital. No, not with the hospital. But I think she's down with the scientific. She's a doctor. You're right. So she's, she's like DMSO. That makes sense. That's what my symptoms are. Like, you know what I mean? She's a very scientific person. Right. But she was there. So where, where'd you put the, the vial? Oh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she, we need answers to those questions. Yeah. Go ahead. Where are you, Julie? Though, you're right. Right. Though. Where she is Julie? She was an advocate. But, she was out here. But she was more so. I don't know if she advocating was an, for the scientific. I think she was more so advocating for herself Self. rather mm. than. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You know. So there's there's four theories total in what happened. Like I said, it is unsolved. The first theory is that it was natural causes bullshit. The nope. second theory was that it was DMSO. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Questionable. The third theory is methyl... Me, wait, I'm sorry. Methylamine. That's not right. Methylamine? Spell it. M-E-T-H-Y-L-A-M-I-N-E. Okay, M-T-I-N-E. That's what we're going to call it. <laughs> Methylamine. In 1997, the New York Times Los Angeles published a theory in which they claimed that Gloria's death and the illness of 23 staff members were caused by methylamine, a precursor drug used in the production of methamphetamines. Oh. Interestingly, interestingly, it is known to have an ammonia-like smell. Oh, okay. According to this theory, members of the hospital staff were involved in drug making and smuggling. It is believed that they use IV bags to (gasps) smuggle methylamine in that an infected one was accidentally given to (gasps) Gloria, not only resulting in her death, but also in the intoxication of the staff. Oh, my God. Perhaps the most compelling evidence is when Livermore Labs found while examining Gloria's organs. In the report, remember I said it was stated they had found an abnormal amount of nicotinamide in Gloria's system. Nicotinamide is a type of vitamin B3, which is commonly mixed with illegal drugs as it adds to the euphoria. (gasps) Plus, it is cheap and potent and can easily increase profits. Oh, my God. Right? That's what it is. Sorry. The final theory is improper like hospital practices and a possible cover up. And this is has to do with radiation exposure. Mm. This theory is like most difficult to disprove, mostly because it's like really largely like unfalsifiable. Mm-hmm. It's possible that something happened at that hospital because the hospital itself has had numerous infractions on different areas of improper practices that have resulted in health hazards in the past year leading up to Gloria's wow. death. Yet, no investigation ever brought that up. Vanderbilt? The theory, yeah, Vanderbilt? right? Is that you? Are you on the yeah, phone? Right. Vanderbilt, are you here? Are you the here? theory is that the death of Gloria Ramirez must have had to do with high levels of exposure to radiation. Some believe that possibly four to six gamma rays worth of radiation spewed into the emergency room via vents, causing extreme symptoms of radiation poisoning from acute exposure unknowingly. Mm. This explains the immediacy of the symptoms and the wide variety of ailments as radiation sickness can cause avascular necrosis like Julie had in her knees, seizures, vomiting, dizziness, and fainting. However, this theory is limited to what caused the symptoms, not so much how the radiation got into the hospital in the first place. Many believe for over 30 people to experience these effects, so many who didn't come into contact with Gloria, that radiation exposure is the only explanation and that the hospital covered it up. (gasps) 
But then why? But does that explain the crystals in her blood? I mean, she if she had cancer, okay, and she maybe she was getting certain type of radiation mm-hmm. treatment, and this type of radiation together, together, you're right, with all the sedatives and yep. all the medicine. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we're not doctors, but we're not doctors, but wish we were. I don't know. Anyway, okay, Dr. Morgan, tell us. Anyway, that's all I have. That is the mysterious and unsolved death of Gloria Ramirez. And a lot of people, a lot of podcasts will title this the toxic lady. But I don't think no. that's fair. I think that's fucked up. No, that's not fair. And I don't like it. So no. we are not titling that. I'm not calling her that. Um, it is. No, if we're talking about toxic, we're singing the Britney Spears song, and that's it. Yeah, so, period. And, we're, and then we're talking about y'all's exes. But that's I, I think it's kind of like, I think it was a hospital cover-up, but I think it was more so the methamphetamine drug ring. Mm-hmm. I, either way, it's a cover-up, no matter what. There's yeah. nothing you can tell me, but the methamphetamine drug, drug ring. Because mm-hmm. the hospital probably paid off the coroner's office yes. to not release that finding of that nicotinamide Maybe or whatever. involved in it. Right, but the hospital can make an easy connection with the coroner, the local yeah. county coroner, to be like, "Hey, don't release that one finding." But when it goes to a national laboratory, they're going to find that they're going to release that. But did Julie work at that hospital? Yeah, maybe she just wasn't in the loop. Maybe, and she, she was. Well, she was a resident doctor. She had just finished med school. Oh, she yeah. was in her residency. You're right. So damn, and not. I'm sure there's hundreds of employees there. I'm sure not all of them are, but right. You're right. You're right. Damn, that was a good one, Morgan. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, girl. You're welcome. You're up, killer. All right. (laughs) Why did you just call me? Killer. Killer mom? Killer? No, no, mom. All right. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Do you ever think about how important it is to take care of your mind? Like, really, we only have one mind, one brain. Why aren't we obsessing over it? No, Morgan, you're so right. Like, it's so trendy to see all of your morning, hair, skin, makeup routines, and yeah, we get your pockets apiece, but why are we not going more into detail about our brain and mental health routines? How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, and there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. You've heard it once and you're going to hear it again. BetterHelp saved my life. It was easy, affordable, and it was convenient for me at any time that I needed it, especially when I was working that crazy schedule at the time. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist quick in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off of their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Creeps and Crimes. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Creeps and Crimes. And when you try it out, let us know. Yeah, tag us in your TikTok mental health routines. We can't wait to see it. Uh, today I am covering the clutter family murders and I'm just going to pop right into it. But before we get into it, um, family murders, trigger warning, kids are getting murdered. Going to pop right into it, but also not. I'm not, I'm not going to pop right into it, but I'm going to pop right into it. But I just want to be sure that you guys are know, knowing that this has people and children in it. Okay. Okay. In 1959, 48 year old Herb Clutter was a prosperous farmer living in Holcomb, Kansas with his wife, 45 year old Bonnie, and the couple had four children. There's Ivana, Beverly, Nancy, and Kenyon. 
Ivana and Beverly had moved out and they because they were adults and they were no longer living with the family as Ivana was living in Illinois with her husband while Beverly was studying nursing at Kansas City. And so this is like 1959. Like that's really cool that she's studying nursing. Yeah, like, you that go. shows you just how well off this family was at this time. Um, but 16 year old Nancy and 15 year old Kenyon, they were living with their parents on the family farm and attending Holcomb High School. The Clutter Farm was an extremely rural area and it's a little outside of Holcomb not exactly in Holcomb and Holcomb how many times am I going to say it is just a small farming town like so small I'm talking there were barely 300 residents there at this time according to Berlin Sylvester on ranker.com Holcomb was a typical Midwest town there was no one there that was a stranger the dinner tables always had extra plates and seats for friends and family to join and there was no reason to lock your doors because you knew everyone from Claire Trapasso's reporting on Realtor.com, which this was so interesting, I really encourage you to go to the Realtor.com situation on this. The Clutter Family Farm was nine acres with a beautiful two-story farmhouse that was built and designed by the family in 1948, costing them $40,000 at the time. So now only God knows how much that would be. Um, the home was very modern, innovative, and stylish. It had 14 rooms, four formal bedrooms, two and a half baths, and running water, which was a massive luxury at this time in this area of rural America. The kitchen cabinets went all the way up to the ceiling, and they had pull-out steps built into the bottom drawers so they could like step up on them and anyone could reach the top. I love this house. Right. The exterior consisted of blonde brick, which really stood out among the like typical stucco and wood siding houses that filled this town and the area and was typical for the time. The home had an extremely large basement, and this was not common in the area, so it was another luxury, and it comes back in in this case. Herb was an extremely successful man, and he worked really hard on his family farm, and because of this, he was celebrated by his community, especially because the Clutter family shared their home and opened their doors to everyone, including their farm. They would host all family gatherings, parties, community parties, 4-H club, and farm bureau meetings in their home. Wow. They offered farmham jobs to anyone in their community to be employed with great income and even offered jobs to individuals who were homeless in a bad time or ex-convicts to help them get them back on their feet. Herb paid very well and personally helped out anyone who worked for him. He loved his workers and his workers loved him and his family for their kindness and open door mentality. But there was one rule when working on the Clutter family farm. You could not drink and you could not have alcohol kept in your home or in your personal belongings. I'm like, that's pretty damn strict, okay? Like, I get not drinking on the job, but I guess it's a different time, you know, and a different area. So how did Herb make all of this money, his fortune? Well, he was an innovator. According to the True Crime Edition and the New York Times, on November 14th, 1959, Herb spent his Saturday as he does most Saturdays, as most farmers do, which is supervising his ranch and his workers. Kenyon, the 15-year-old son, was extremely innovative, just like his father, and he would spend his entire day constructing, deconstructing, taking apart, rebuilding various different electronics cars and machines 
God, can you imagine being like that? I wish I was. I'm not like I'm just not a hard worker. <laughs> well, the difference between us and him is that he wanted to be an engineer when he grew up. Oh, okay. Yeah, and an inventor. So, and on top of all of this, he was gifted naturally and extremely intelligent. Okay. He was us. a sophomore, and he was very quiet and shy, but very active and 4-H with his sister Nancy. He loved hunting, woodworking, and fixing up this old truck that he had saved up all of his money to buy with his dad. Nancy, the 16-year-old daughter, she was the town darling, they say. I love that. Beautiful, kind, popular, and she had really big dreams of moving to New York City to go to college. Yes, girl. Nancy was an active member in 4-H, a straight-A student at Holcomb High School where she played clarinet in the band. She was really involved with her church, and she loved baking, horse riding, music, cooking, and sewing. But... What's really cool about this is everybody else like admired her abilities and what she knew how to do. So she would host these classes for her friends and classmates to come over and she would teach them how to sew, bake, cook, like yes, do music. Nancy. Like, really, really cool of her. Nancy was in a long term relationship with this local boy named Bobby Rupp or Roop. And she told her family that she loves him and all, but this wasn't her forever because they didn't have the same dreams and aspirations. She okay, wanted fair. to go to NYC. He wanted to stick around small town, farm town. Okay, fair. Fair enough, girl. We love a girl that knows her power. Pe- Bonnie Clutter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> period. <laughs> Bonnie Clutter, the wife and mother, she really struggled after her last birth of Kenyon and it caused her to have really bad um, postpartum depression and it was never properly treated and because of this Bonnie would go through severe depressive states that would leave her bedridden but also resulted in her experiencing severe body aches from more birth trauma that she experienced and insomnia due to her depression making it to where that she would have to sleep separately from her husband in their spare room that way she could get a good night's sleep during the day if she needed to and not keep her husband up at night when Whenever she couldn't sleep. Some reports say that she was mainly bedridden around this time, but the two oldest sisters dispute this, saying that she was very much involved with the keeping of the home, cooking, supporting of her community, her husband, and her children, and she loved the local gardening club. Love this family. I know. This Saturday, the family members each did their own things, joining together for breakfast and dinner and discussing their days before going to sleep that night. Meanwhile, at that same time, 28-year-old Richard Dick Hickok and 31-year-old Perry Smith were driving 400 miles across the state of Kansas heading towards the Clutter's farm in order to rob the family safe. You're kidding. Dick was born on June 6, 1931 in Kansas City, Kansas, to farm workers Walter Sr. and Eunice Hickok as one of their many children. They had a great family, and the parents raised their kids to be kind and very hard workers, but they were extremely strict, like in a harsh love type of way. And in 1947, their family moved from Kansas City to the small town of Edgerton in East Kansas. There, Dick attended Olaf, okay, it's like Olaf. Olaf, 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 okay, Olaf, Olaf, that sounds right, high school, and was a very popular student athlete. He graduated with great grades and ambitions to go to college, but his family just could not afford to send him, so instead he became a mechanic. He was paid very well for his work, and he ended up settling down and he got married at 19 years old, but that next year in 1950, Dick got into a really awful car accident that left half of his face mildly paralyzed and disfigured because of the severity of his head injuries. He was in the hospital and underwent many surgeries, almost dying. 
Though he survived, his brother later explained that this permanently changed Dick. He was left with mounting debt, and this was from his surgeries, medical treatments, and hospital stays. And Thanks, to, America. Yeah. And in, to try to fix this, he started writing, like, fake checks and gambling to try to get the money to pay it. Dick was floating from job to job, railroad, mechanic, ambulance driver, and so much more. And he ends up cheating on his wife and having a baby with his mistress. Oh, shit. So his first wife divorces him, and then Dick remarries to his mistress, and they had another child together. Oh, shit. <laughs> right? Meanwhile, his criminal career was going taken off at this point, and he starts committing petty theft and forging larger checks. In 1958, at 26 years old, he was arrested and sent to prison at the Kansas State Penitentiary for stealing a rifle out of a local home that he had robbed. And while in prison, his second wife divorces him. Dick was on a never-ending spiral, which is when he became very good friends with fellow inmates Perry Smith and Floyd Wales. Wales. <laughs> Wales. Wales. Floyd used to work as a farmhand for the Clutter family, and he would talk about how rich they were, going on and on about this safe that Herb had kept hidden in his home that contained $10,000. After hearing this, Perry Smith and Dick decided that once they got out in fall of 59, they were going to rob the Clutters and flee the state. Nothing like getting out of jail and going right back to where you were. <laughs> right. Getting out of jail, having a good life. No, I'm going to go back to crime. <laughs> yeah. Dick Hickok was released in August of 1959 at the age of 28, and he got a job near his family in that same town that starts with an O that I can't say. And he was working at this body shop while he waited for Perry to get out in November. So let's talk a little bit about Perry. Perry Smith was born on October 27th, 1928 in Huntington, Nevada, or Nevada, whichever one you guys like and attack me about, I can't ever remember, <laughs> to rodeo performers Flo Buckskin and Tex Smith. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. All right. A year after his birth, the family relocated <laughs> to Juneau, Alaska, where um, his father worked as a distiller for bootleg whiskey. And the family lived this very isolated, remote lifestyle. And it's not because of Tex's work being straight up illegal, but it was because of his abuse. Oh. Tex would abuse his wife and four children severely until Flo had finally left him in 1935, fleeing with her children to San Francisco. Good for her. But she also suffered from severe alcoholism from the years of abuse. And when Perry was 13, she died after choking on her own vomit. Oh my gosh. That's just absolutely traumatic oh yeah it's awful and 13 then, years old and you just have dealt with all of that bullshit like that's like how do parents do that to their children i don't I'll know never and understand. then afterwards they go they go to a catholic orphanage you're kidding like, that cannot worse. be good i can't wait and to hear about this there all of the siblings claimed that they had been abused by the nuns physically and emotionally because of their chronic bedwetting which was a result of their abuse and malnutrition literally what the shit yeah, and then Perry was moved to the Salvation Army Orphanage where he was allegedly attacked by a caretaker who tried to drown him after he bed bedwetted again. Are you kidding? Like, first off, they're, that they're is here so, for... That is so sad. Like, but yet, here we are. <clears throat> here we are. <clears throat> here we are. Adopt. Adopt. Don't kill. Like, really? Send okay, more don't kids. Don't kill. Send more <laughs> that, kids. That was, that was a little forced. Send more kids to orphanage. <laughs> right. Is 
So at, after the Salvation Army incident, um, Tex comes back the dad, and he reunites with Perry and the kids. But the other kids are like, no, we're not going with him. But Perry was like, anything to get me out of this hellhole. And they start traveling around the West, and they never settle down. And during this time, Perry is placed in different juvenile detention homes because of petty crimes and joining street gangs. And trigger warning before we get into this. Both Perry's father and two of Perry's three siblings committed suicide. The surviving sibling, his sister, also refused to have any contact with Perry since he left with Tex. At 16, Perry joined the um, Merchant Marines, and then when he was 20 in 1948, he joined the U.S. Army. During this time, he was pretty successful in the Army, like in the Korean War. He apparently like got a lot of honors during it. Wow. But while stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington, he was honorably discharged, and he moved in with a friend in Tacoma, working as a car painter, making great money. With his very first paycheck, he bought a motorcycle, but just days later, while driving in bad weather, he got into a severe accident that almost killed him. Because of this, he spent six months in the hospital and was left permanently disabled because of his severe injuries to his head and legs, suffering chronic leg pains that were treated with excessive amounts of aspirin. Perry went back to his life of crime after this in order to pay for his medication and hospital bills, and this resulted in tons of debt, just like Dick, which is why the two became so freaking close while serving their sentences together at Kansas State Penitentiary. Perry was released in November of 1959, and he met up with Dick. Dick had been working and saved up all of this money, everything that they would need to purchase the supplies and aid in their crime. So the two set off for the Clutter Farm, just as they had planned. In the early morning hours of Sunday, November 15, 1959, they arrived at the Clutter family home with a 12-gauge shotgun and entered through the, as promised, unlocked front door while the family was sleeping. But they were making so much noise, so the family woke up. They collected Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon, forcing them into the bathroom on the second floor of the home and locking them in. Dick and Perry then went to Herb and led him at gunpoint to his first floor office, demanding the money from the safe that Floyd Wells had told them about. But Herb insisted that there was no safe in the home and there was no money. Dick and Perry began searching through the entire home, realizing that Herb was telling the truth. There was no safe and there was no money that was visible, at least. So they went to the bathroom where Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon were. One by one, they took the family members from the bathroom. Bonnie's hands were tied in front of her body. She was gagged and led to the room on the second, a bedroom, I'm sorry, on the second floor and tucked into the bed. Then Nancy's hands were tied behind her back. She was led to another bedroom where she was tucked in, but unlike her mother, she was not gagged. Once the women were tucked in, Kenyon and Herb were led down into the basement. Dick and Perry tied his hands behind his back and gagged him with a rope. I'm sorry, this is talking about Kenyon. And he was tied overhead to a steam pipe in the furnace room. After a few minutes of going back and forth, Dick and Perry agreed that they could not do this to a 15-year-old boy. So they cut him free and moved him to an adjoining playroom where they laid him on his side on a small couch with a pillow behind his head like to make him comfy. Yeah, it's kind of nurturing. Yeah, and you, but you just like literally tied, and you just tied him over a furnace right. steam pipe. Yeah, but make up your mind. Kind well, of. like a, a half of me wonders if they were kind of like seeing themselves in this fifteen-year-old boy mm-hmm. because that was very traumatic times for both of them. Absolutely. So yeah. I wonder if they had like a lot more symp- sympathy for him than anybody else. 
So they laid him on his side and put a pillow behind his back. Lastly, they bound and gagged Herb and they placed him onto this like mattress box that was lying on the concrete floor in the furnace room that was flattened down. Perry stayed with Kenyon and Herb while Dick returned upstairs to search for the safe once again. Not long after, Dick returns freaking out and he's angry because he could not find this fucking safe and he went through all this trouble to come here for the safe and he can't find it. Before even entering the home though, they planned that if they were to have anybody catch them, they were going to have to kill that person in order to eliminate all witnesses. And they were so loud they woke up the entire fucking family. So they went back and forth on what to do. They were angry at Floyd Wells and the lack of money. They were just freaking out. Sounds to me like take it out on Floyd Wells. Right. Like do not take it out on this family. Go back to your buddy Floyd who's still in prison and let his ass have it. Yeah. So Perry went over to Herb in a fit of rage and slit his throat before shooting him in the head. Oh my God. The two went then to the playroom to find Kenyon still laying on the couch Perry then shot Kenyon to death before the two went upstairs to Nancy. Trigger warning. Dick wanted to rape Nancy before killing her, but Perry told him that they didn't have enough time for that. So instead, Dick just shot her in the head. Lastly, they went to Bonnie's room, placed a gun against her temple, and as they had done with the others, killed her. Dick and Perry then went back to collect all of their spent shells before ransacking the entire home. But the only things they could find to take were Kenyon's uh, Zenith Zenith portable radio, Herb's binoculars, and less than $50 in cash, which is literally the amount, the only amount of cash that the family would keep on them at once, which today is equal to $480. Hours later, when Nancy missed church, her friend 16-year-old Nancy Ewalt went to the home to check on her. She walked into Nancy's room where she found her tucked into the bed. She walked over to wake her up when she realized that there was blood splatter all on the wall. Her friend Nancy ran from the clutter home to the neighbor's house and called police. Chief Mitchell Geisler and Assistant Chief Rich Rowletter and officers from the Garden City Police Department arrived at the family's farmhouse at 10 a.m. investigating the gruesome scene. Rowletter was an expert photographer and went through the entire crime scene with Geisler to collect all evidence within photographs and in like the contained things. So this is what they found in the photographs. Um, They got a bloody footprint, which I'm going to get back to, and tire tracks that were the most like incriminating, I guess. Within hours, other officers from different departments, including the Kansas City Bureau of Investigation, doctors, a minister, reporters, and photographers arrived at the home. And the KBI took over the case with lead investigator Alvin Dewey, who was a friend of Herb's, on a mission to find the killers with a team of 18 other investigators, working countless hours, only stopping to attend the Clutter's funeral. Approximately 1,000 people were in attendance at the funeral at First Methodist Church in Garden City, Kansas, a city seven miles east of Holcomb. Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon were buried at Valley View Cemetery on the north edge of the Garden City together. Agent Dewey worked very closely with other government agencies to examine the evidence and develop solid leads. By doing this, they were able to develop Rowletter's crime scene investigations with, I mean, sorry, crime scene photos with ultraviolet light. And this created a boot print in the photograph that was clearly visible in many images, but to the naked eye, it was not. Because Herb, Nancy, Bonnie, and Kenyon were all found in their pajamas and barefoot, they knew that these prints had to belong to the attackers. Unfortunately, this boot print belonged to a commonly worn and popular shoe at the time, 
but this was going to be extremely important when prosecuting suspects. Dewey then contacted the two surviving daughters and extremely close friends of the clutters to have them walk through the home and make a list of anything that could possibly be missing, which is when they discovered that Bonnie's jewelry box had not been taken. And what's odd about this is that's where Bonnie's body was located beside her jewelry box in the bed. So this means all of the things that were taken from the home were found in rooms that bodies of the victims were not occupying. But because the jewelry box had been left behind with very expensive pieces inside, it threw police off course and it had them questioning if this motive was really robbery, resulting in the case stalling less than a month after the murders took place. As Christmas was approaching, people in the town could only think about the Clutter family and their case. It was all over the news, the newspapers, the radios, and more. This heinous crime was spreading like wildfire, shocking Kansas residents to their core. A few weeks before Christmas, Alvin Dewey, the agent who's leading this investigation, receives a phone call from one of his colleagues named Logan Sanford. He was the director of the KBI in Topeka. Sanford had a lead, but it wasn't just any lead. He had Floyd Wells, shut up, Dick and Perry's prison buddy, who had told them about the fucking safe. Floyd, who was still in prison, called Sanford explaining that he knew who had killed the clutters, but he would not talk unless he was given in return early release and the reward money being offered. To Dewey, this was like literally the only thing he had left at this point. So he agreed and he got the names of Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, launching a nationwide bolo to other police departments and their photos, names, and details to the public media. Immediately, tips and sightings came pouring in to lead investigators from Kansas City all the way to Las Vegas and the surrounding areas. Finding fraudulent checks that had been cashed, pawned binoculars that had been stolen from the home, and they had used the money from this to hitchhike from California to Nebraska. After this, they had a brief stay in Kansas City before going to Florida and finally ending up in Las Vegas. On December 30th, Dick and Perry were located in Las Vegas after picking up a package of their personal belongings that they had shipped to themselves from Mexico, which is where they pawned the binoculars at and fled to right after the murders took place. Why didn't place. they stay there? Right. Why, why did you come back? They were spotted not because of the bolo, but instead because the car they were driving had been reported missing or stolen in Iowa. Jeez. <laughs> and they were arrested for vehicle theft and all of their belongings were being held by police. Once they were booked, the KBI and detective or agent Alvin Dewey got a notification that the two had been arrested. Along with all of their belongings, they flew the two to Nevada. I'm from sorry, from Nevada to Garden City, Kansas. There, the two were questioned separately by Dewey and his team while evidence was being sifted through with their belongings. In the box, investigators found the boots that were worn in the murders and both eventually confessed to killing the family. But Dick Hickok was adamant that Perry Smith had pulled the trigger every time, not him. But Perry Smith was adamant that it was Dick who wanted to murder them, and he was the one who ended up shooting Nancy and Bonnie. Both Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith were charged with four counts of first-degree murder and sent to trial on March 22, 1960. 
During the trial, both pled insanity, but after local practitioners evaluated them, they were determined to be completely sane. On March 29, 1960, a jury of all men ruled that Perry Smith and Richard Dick Hickok were guilty of all charges and should be sentenced to death. Both men lived on death row for five years at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. There, Perry Smith read countless books, wrote poems, and painted photos of other inmates and their families, which he sold to them for to give as gifts. Though Perry Smith often stayed to himself, both he and Richard Dick Hickok would talk about the crimes of their time in gruesome details to anyone who would ask. So when Truman Capote wanted to interview them, they were ready and willing. And if you don't know who Truman Capote is, are you okay? Are you living under a rock? Just in case, I'm going to give you some background. Um, but he is, an, I'm sorry, was an American novelist, screenwriter, playwright, and actor. Many of his short stories, novels, and plays are considered to be literary classics, which includes the 1958 novella Breakfast at Tiffany's, Love. the 1966 true crime novel In Cold Blood, which is about the Clutter family murders. He spent six years writing this book with the help of lifelong friend Harper Lee, a.k.a. the writer of the 1960 novel To Kill a Mockingbird. Truman Capote first learned about the murders when reading a 300-word article ran by the New York Times on November 16, 1959, the day after the murders. In the article, there was a quote about, from the sheriff saying, quote, This is apparently the case of a psychopathic killer. Capote was fascinated, immediately calling Harper Lee to join him on a trip to Holcomb, Kansas, where they visited the Clutter home. Truman Capote became extremely close friends with anyone that was involved in this investigation and most of the residents in town. He had an amazing memory, so he was able to con conduct formal interviews without the people knowing it. Um, and he would just like write his note down after talking to them and he like remembered everything that's insane. that's insane that's like spencer reed right meanwhile harper lee became extremely close with all of the wives in the town to use as interviewees and gain the trust for more information to be shared like about r little rumors going around but he also became really close with perry smith after being interviewed and extensively interviewing him for many hours i'm assuming um but according to in cold blood perry said when being asked about the murder of herb clutter quote i didn't want to harm the man i thought he was a very nice gentleman soft-spoken i thought so i thought so right up until the moment that i cut his throat that's sick and when Truman asked him why he refused to sign the written confession, Perry said, quote, because I felt sorry for Dick's mother. She's a real sweet person. What? Now you feel sorry? <laughs> Jeez. On April 14, 1965, 36-year-old Perry Smith and 33-year-old Richard Dick Hickok were executed by hanging. Oh, my God. According to the Garden City Police Department's article on their website, for, the last, for their last meals, the, um, they each ordered spiced shrimp, french fries, garlic bread, and ice cream topped with strawberries and whipped cream. They asked to eat their meals in their own room separately, and they were attended and asked for a chaplain to come to both of them. Perry Smith's last words were, quote, I think it is a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. I say this especially because there is a great deal that I could have offered society. I certainly think capital punishment is legally and morally wrong. An apology for what I have done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities towards anyone involved with this matter. I think that is all. Richard Dick Hickok was then asked if he had anything, and he said, quote, No, I guess I don't. 
before motioning for the KBI agent Roy, uh, Roy Church, who played a really large role in um, their arrest, to come closer to him. And he said to him, quote, you're sending me to a better place than this. I won't hold any grudges towards you. And then he shook his hand, saying goodbye. As Richard Dick Hickok waited for the trap door to spring beneath him, the chaplain, Reverend Edgar Messiner, I think is how you pronounce it, read a portion of Psalms 23. Richard Dick Hickok was pronounced dead at 12.41 a.m. As Perry Smith waited, uh, Chaplain Reverend James Post prayed quietly because Perry did not want anything read over him. He said, quote, The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. Reverend James Post later said, quote, I guess I cheated him a little bit, talking about Perry Smith, um, so I just pay- played a little quiet prayer. <laughs> oh, God. I'm like, that's kind of rude. If he didn't want anything said to him, then, I mean, it's his last wish. Yeah. You know? Perry Smith was pronounced dead at 1.19 a.m. The state paid for their burials of both men, and they were buried at Mount Munis Cemetery in Langsing. But the story doesn't end there. But before we move on, I do want to have, like, this whole, like, capital punishment hanging it really wrecks me like i'm so in between on it you know well, i think hanging is what do you want the electric chair well no i think anything that's torture like is really fucked up yeah um i think capital punishment lethal injection yeah is appropriate in some cases yeah in some cases i don't think that like i think there's a lot of in justices that Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cases that receive capital punishment for no fucking reason right Um, like damien eccles in um the west memphis exactly yeah exactly um but like if you're out there playing tut bundy then you deserve lethal injection i'm sorry I, i that's how i feel yeah i just have like i don't know i have like a a thing on it i don't know because like if something were to happen to one of my family members, um, you're going to want that motherfucker dead. I'm going to kill them myself. Right. So I go back and forth on saying like, is it, is it necessary or what? But like, I don't know if, if someone's showing that they've been rehabilitated in a different way, like I don't think you can rehabilitate a murderer. I mean, let's talk about Ed and Kemper. Okay. Right. No. Um, but I think there is a level to it. Like maybe if you're rehabilitated to a certain point, you still get life in prison, but you're off death row. You know, I don't know. There's just, there's just different, it's just, I don't know. The more I think about it, I get really upset. And then at the same time, I'm like, I mean, but should we still be doing the eye for an eye fight, fight, fire, fire type of situation? Right. Two wrongs don't make a right. Like right. we were taught that since we're kids. Right. But and the fact that they have like people that come and watch executions. That's weird. That's fucked up. Yeah. That is so fucked up. I don't know. There's just different levels to it, obviously. I guess I wouldn't know unless I was. It's a very controversial topic. Yeah. Um, which, I, don't, I don't really know how I feel about it. I just feel like in some some cases, like, I'm not saying, like, people can't be rehabilitated, but there are just some people that are b- pure evil, I feel like, yeah. that are literally, I, I... I just think about it in the way of, like, dogs. Like, if a dog accidentally bites a human, and it's, like, a pit bull, and it's, like, the one bite rule, and they have to put it, go put it down, I'm like, how the fuck is that fair? Well, yeah, but I, I don't think that, like, people are accidentally biting or accidentally well, right. killing one person. You're like, right. These are like the people that I think deserve capital punishment are people that are repeatedly serial killers. Serial killers. Yeah. That's why I'm, that's why I was having a conversation with Logan. Cause Logan's like all for it. And I'm like, I don't, 
I don't know where I stand. I mean, I get it if it's like to a certain point, like mm-hmm. you've murdered. It just it depends on the case. It, does. it really does depend on the case. But at the same time, there's. I think it should there should be like standards that have to be hit and it shouldn't be like and there should there should be some sort of rehabilitation process yeah to allow them to potentially get off potentially get off like it shouldn't not get out of jail but because when you see Damien what is his name Damien Eccles Damien Eccles um Eddie Munson Damien Eccles Eddie Munson yeah Yeah. when you see his case like the judge really fucked him the judge you know what I mean so like it it could be the fact that you have an awful jury you have an awful right judicial the media representative in a different way right so like i don't know it's it's different it's just but yeah like hearing that when they were talking about like going through their quotes that really just really fucked me up on a different edge like i normally don't go this far and like talk to you guys about when they were executed and i just kept reading on this and i was like i kind of want to talk about it because i I don't ever do it so i figured i would but i don't know where i stand it just depends i think well you know we i started feeling a certain way about them not not like in a way that they shouldn't have gotten gotten off but like um you'll see why in a second okay so the story doesn't end there let's get back to it while in prison both men were questioned about a family that had been murdered on december 19th 1959 oh. as they had both admitted to be in florida on that same date and the killer's mo were the exact same as the clutter family's murder during questioning and a polygraph was administered and they were cleared well in the late 2000s these test results were later re-examined using modern polygraph standards and their tests were no longer considered not guilty therefore on december 18th 19 i'm sorry uh 2012 i just has have said 19 the entire time but 2012 both men's bodies were exhumed and their bone fragments were taken in order to compare the DNA to the 53-year-old case of the Florida family murders. Oh, shit. But really quick, I'm going to take you through this case for, but before we do, trigger warning for R, S, A, and uh, children, by children I mean like baby, baby murders. No, 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 no. Yeah. On December 20th, 1959, Daniel McLeod had gotten up early to go meet his best friend and co-worker, 25-year-old Cliff Walker, to go hunting in Osprey, I think it's Osprey, Florida. Daniel hauled his horses and trailer to Cliff's 1,000-acre property called the Palmer Ranch, where he lived with his wife and kids, 24-year-old Christine Walker and their two babies, 3-year-old son, Jimmy, and 1-year-old daughter, Debbie. When Daniel arrived at the home, it was completely dark inside the home, which was really odd because this family was known for being early risers. So he began knocking on the side door, thinking that they had overslept. After 15 minutes of no answer, Daniel had a sinking feeling that something was wrong, so he began walking around the entire home. On the front porch, there were cut logs used for the living room fireplace and wrapped Christmas gifts. The family's cars were there, but they were not parked in their regular spots. Daniel grew panicked, cut the screen door open, and broke into the home, never imagining the scene that he would come across. Christine was found lying in a pool of blood naked in her living room, with Cliff and three-year-old Jimmy slumped over in the corner by the side door, covered in blood. They were all three cold to the touch and clearly dead. But where was one-year-old Debbie? Daniel began sprinting around the entire home in search for the little girl when he finally found her. 
She was upstairs, dead, in a blood and water-filled bathtub. Daniel immediately called police, who rushed to the scene. Investigators found that there were items taken from the home, but they were extremely bizarre. There was Christine's high school majorette uniform was gone, Cliff's pocket knife, and the couple's marriage license had been taken. But left behind by the killers were fingerprints on the bathtub faucet, a cellophane strip, uh, which is of a cigarette wrapper, a single bloody cowboy boot, two different hair samples, one that was blonde and one that was dark brown, and semen. Because of what had been taken from the home, investigators believed that this had to be the doing of one of the couple's exes or, like, revenge against them. And after interviewing friends, family, and creating a timeline of the family's day, this is what police believed happened on December 19th. On Saturday, December 19th, 1959, 24-year-old Christine Walker arrived at her farm home around 4 p.m. after grocery shopping. She entered the home, unpacked the groceries, put them away, and was likely walking out of her kitchen when she was ambushed by someone who was already in the home or she had let them inside. The reason for debating this is because her car was not parked in the regular spot, which would have only happened if someone else had been parked there. If this were the case, whoever was in the home or waiting on her to arrive home was someone that she knew well. Either way, after putting up the groceries, Christine was attacked. She fought viciously against her attacker, using her high heels to stab him and fight back. Amazing. At one point, Christine managed to escape the home and her attacker, but was chased down and drugged back inside. It's believed that she had been hit over the head with a large object at this point to knock her unconscious so they could get her back in the house. She was then carried to three-year-old Jimmy's bedroom where she was, trigger warning, raped on his bed before being shot with a twenty-two caliber firearm. But because there were only two shots fired with the first one missing her, it is thought that she had regained consciousness during this time and was fighting her attacker once again. Maybe able to get away from her attacker this time and into the hallway, which is where she was fatally shot. Not long after Christine was killed, Cliff must have returned home with Jimmy and Debbie. It is thought that as Cliff was unloading the children from the car, the attackers hid and positioned themselves to immediately ambush him. As soon as he walked in through the side door, he was fatally shot in the face. Next, the attackers shot three-year-old Jimmy, who was eating a lollipop. Then they turned to one-year-old Debbie. But as they were focusing in on her, Jimmy had somehow managed to survive and was crawling back to his father. Oh, my God. Where he was shot twice in the back of the head. After they fired at Debbie, um, she managed to survive, too. And it seems like the killers were out of bullets because they then carried one-year-old Debbie to the bathroom and drowned her. The initial suspects in the case were... Daniel McLeod, who was the friend that discovered the bodies. William Tooker, who was a local pervert who actually tried to uh, kiss Christine in the past and regularly made very indecent comments and proposals towards her. And at the most recent uh, proposition Wilbert Tooker made to her that was so nasty that Cliff literally went up to him and said, I will fucking kill you if you come near my wife again. Oh, so he was dirty. Yeah. And the third uh, suspect was Cliff's cousin, Albert Walker, who had been known by police for a long time because of his violent behavior and alcoholism. Just like Tooker, he had made comments about wanting to make advances towards Christine, not to mention at the funeral, he was being fucking crazy. They said he was literally so overanimated, like sobbing, passing out twice. And they were what? like, you didn't even know them that well. 
What? Yeah. So Daniel McLeod, he was cleared very early on because of polygraph testing, and he had like an alibi with his wife. Um, next, Wilbert Tooker was also cleared because he had a rock solid alibi. But Albert Walker remained a suspect until 2006 when he was only eliminated through DNA testing. But there was one more suspect, a named man named Curtis McCall. McCall had a long history of violence and a connection to Christine. Allegedly, they had been having an affair with each other, and he owned a 22 caliber gun. He was questioned on several occasions and given three separate polygraphs, each one being concluded, in, sorry, each one being inconclusive because he was so nervous that he could not get a credible reading. Either way, when he was asked if he was withholding information, the test concluded that he was high, it was highly likely that he was lying. Though these suspects were all considered for great reason, investigators always had the belief that this had to be the doing of two different individuals. Months later, bloody clothes that belonged to Cliff and Christine were discovered in a shed not too far away from the Walker's home. Police theorized that these attackers used the clothes from the home to wipe blood off of themselves before leaving. This also signaled to police that this had to be the doing of someone within the town because of the location of the shed. No one would have known about it. Either way, in 1962, serial killer Emmett Monroe Spencer claimed responsibility for their murders, um, but they dismissed this as a false confession. Why do they do that? I don't know. I don't know why why people do this. Maybe to get on death row so they can get killed and not have to live their sentence out? I don't know. But either way, let's get back to the DNA testing about Perry Smith and Dick Hickok. In uh, 2013, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Department announced that they were unable to find a match between the DNA of the men and the samples that were collected from the family's murder scene using the semen that was found um, in and around Christine, mainly because it was only partial DNA samples that could not be retrieved from the semen sample collected due to decades of being in storage and possibly contamination meaning that these tests performed could not prove or disprove the involvement of Perry Smith and Richard Dick Hickok. Investigators still consider both men to be very the most viable suspects in this case. But not long after this announcement in 2013, Cliff's niece turned in the couple's wedding certificate that had been stolen from the house, saying that it was given to her by another family member. What? As of January of 2022, this year, this case is still unsolved. Um, but that is the horrific murders of the Clutter family and um, the doing of Perry Smith and Dick Hickok. So did they never talked about this case like publicly, like the the Florida family. I guess they did, um, but it, it was just so long ago, you know. Right. And really, it does make sense that Perry Smith and Dick Hickok would be involved in this. Yeah. But, dude, first off, it's the same MO. But at the same time, like, the shit that was taken, you can't pawn a majorette uniform from a right. Like, high I school. feel Right. Like, I feel like it is the same MO, but it also isn't yeah. at the same time. Because I would be like, oh, no, this is doing to someone that's jealous, like an ex or Like, this is vengeful. Yeah. Like, this isn't, this isn't right. But then I was thinking, okay, well, if it was the guy that she was, Christine was allegedly seeing at the time. Maybe he came over and was like, hey, let's go. Let's leave right now. Let's leave. Well, I he's a huge suspect to me because um, whenever they said her car was something, someone else mm-hmm. must have been in her spot because her car was not usually where it normally was. Mm-hmm. If she saw her a fairy's yeah. 
car, whatever you call her, little her flings, side piece, yeah, her side pieces, car sitting in her spot. She's not gonna think twice about it. She'd be like, oh, he's here, right? You know what I mean? And the parent and uh, Cliff wasn't coming home until well over an hour later, so they could have something set up. Yeah, and I was I've always wondered where Cliff was this day. Like, where was he? Right, you know. What was he doing? Yeah, but like, what would have happened between Christine and her lover that would piss him? Whoa, sorry, my cat just clawed me. Um, <laughs> what would have happened between the two that it got so violent? Right. Maybe he like wanted her to leave or do something that she didn't want to. Yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. I don't know. Oh it's a crazy man. Case. Also, something I didn't write down, but I learned from Realtor dot com because it it was doing like a like they were doing like a little article write up about like the houses that people have been murdered in. <laughs> this house ended up having to be destroyed because anybody that the Clutter family farmhouse had to end up being destroyed because whoever was buying it were like selling tickets to come and tour it. Are you serious? And so the county was like, No, this what is the not fuck a is wrong attraction. with y'all? Yeah, right. That is so fucked up. And that's just like creating a haunted house. Right. It is. I was telling Taylor off mic. We didn't get this on mic, but I think that Wells, the guy that was in jail with Perry and Dick, mm-hmm. um, might have like had intentions on like setting them up. Like, oh. like setting them up being like, yeah, hey, I know this. You guys need money. I know this house. Like, right. It's got this huge safe. He keeps 10 grand in there and like. You go rob him, and because either way, he could have turned them in and been a hero for Herb, or right, a hero community. for Herb, or mm-hmm. yeah, if something went wrong, he knows who did it, right? And he got a shorter sentence. He got money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I think he had different intentions with telling them that plan because he there's no safe there. Yeah, there was no safe. Yeah. <sighs> well, it's been a good episode. Yeah. What What did I cover? You guys. <laughs> We had to take an intermission between the I two. Cover you covered um, uh, the girl that we're not going to call the toxic woman, but that's literally the only thing oh, that's coming to mind. Oh, yeah. Gl- Gloria. Gloria, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're I was not like, calling her the toxic this woman. This whole now. time, I'm like, what the hell did I cover yeah. this episode? Yeah, we had to take a little break. Um, we watched um, the Greatest Minds of True Crime yeah. live show. That we talked about in the intro. We So we stopped halfway through Taylor's story and watched that, and then the weekend happened. I was out of town, and then... <laughs> Taylor was out of town and then now we're back five days later finishing it so anyway anyways it's posted you guys are gonna hear this in like seven hours so love ya love ya have a great day um, also before I let you go I have to tell you just a forewarning that next week I am doing a really awful horrific gruesome trigger warning trigger warning trigger tr- trigger warning trigger warning case so be prepared yeah, you guys are like, we want darker. I'm like, I'm okay, like, we'll oh, do a dark God. summer special, like scarred and spooky girl okay, summer. Fine. Like, if you want us to not sleep, I guess it's not about our health. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. I mean, fine. If you're going to force us, <laughs> you're going to hold a gun against our head, we'll do it. Anyway. All right, guys, that's it. So, uh, see you guys next week and for a dark ass, spooky, scarred girl summer. Bye. Bye.